Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 13, verse 23. Acts chapter 13, verse 23 is where we'll be in the teaching today. Acts chapter 13, verse 23. Ah, man. You guys awake? You guys alive? Yes. Not really? Kind of? We need to like do like five hour energy shots for communion, right? <laughs> Everyone would be like, that'd be pretty crazy. Well, it's good to continue to worship the Lord through uh, the, the division of his word, the teaching of his word. So hopefully you guys are over at Acts chapter 13, verse 23. Last week we began to study the sermon Paul gave to a mixed group at a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which is in Galatia. You know that book in your Bible back there called Galatians? This is where they went and planted churches, and that letter was addressed to these folks later on. Uh, so he's been over there in this area, and he's just began to preach a sermon that we begin to evaluate, look at, study, break down. He's at the synagogue city in Antioch, Galatia. Now his sermon, Paul's sermon, consists of three major sections. Mentioned this last week, just giving you a quick, you know, kind of a reminder, refresher. In each section, he presents Jesus in an incredible way, in a different way. And uh, last week, we focused on section one, which was Jesus, the culmination of history. Paul began his sermon by giving his listeners, this mixed group at the synagogue, a brief history lesson, taking them all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He called them the fathers, or the original fathers, or patriarchs of the Jewish nation, from those particular guys he was referencing, he, referencing, uh, he took them all the way up through the Exodus and through the time of conquest and then through the time of Judges and then all the way up to King David. So that's what we looked at last week, the beginning part of his sermon where he gave this overview of history, reminding his listeners of God's redemptive plan beginning with Abraham and then carrying uh, those promises and things all the way through up to King David. Paul's goal was to ultimately remind his listeners about God's historical redemptive promises and then to point to Jesus as the fulfillment of some of those promises. One of those great promises that was made to Abraham was that God was going to, through Abraham's seed, bless the world, bless all the families of all nations. And that particular promise is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the seed of Abraham, who came through David later, and who has ultimately blessed the world and continues to bless the world with salvation and provision and all of these other things. And so his goal was to remind them of these promises that were made and then to lead them to this moment where he would declare that Jesus is the answered promise. He is the answer to the promise. He is the promises in culmination. And so... That's kind of where he's leading to. That's where he's taking us right now. I kind of got the cart a little ahead of the horse last week. I tend to do that and uh, just really proclaimed Jesus through the whole sermon and invited people to repent and believe. And man, sue me. So, uh, but we're going to continue to move forward here in this sermon and we're going to examine it a little bit more. Take a look at what he says next in the next verse. And, you know, we're not even going to get past this verse today. Um, I'll, I'll explain why, you'll see. But I'd like to begin with uh, just a quick word of prayer, and then we'll read together 1323 
and then we'll begin to examine it in careful detail. Father, thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the church. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for these folks that are here today, Lord. Uh, Help us to be attentive, to listen to what you have to say today, to be impacted by your word, to be changed by your word, and to live differently according to your word. Um, Hearing alone is nothing. Hearing and doing is what it's all about. And uh, that's what it says in the epistle, James. And so we want to be not just hearers, but also doers, and that we hear and we're changed, and then therefore we do. And uh, so help us to do that today. Guard our minds and hearts as we tackle some difficult subject matter this morning. There's widespread abuses of these things that we'll talk about today in the church. And, uh, and we are prone as saved sinners to uh, engaging in some of these things that are going to be mentioned. Maybe some of us are, and we need to be corrected and transformed by your truth and get, on, get ourselves on track here by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so help us today, Lord, to listen, help us to be changed, and help us to live out the truth uh, that we are going to examine and and learn from today. And uh, Satan uh, obviously does not want any of these sermons that we preach here preached. He hates you. He hates your truth. He hates us. And he has been working feverishly all week to dissuade me from preaching this sermon. And I say to heck with him. And, uh, and God, I pray that you would give him another punch in the chops today. And uh, he, is, he is a defeated foe. And may he be made more aware of that today. And may we be made aware of that, that we may live in further victory over him and his deceptions and all that he's about, Lord. So um, rebuke him today, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ and help us to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Serious stuff here. But anyways, let's move forward. Acts 13, 23, I'll read it. It's a short, quick verse. I'm just going to read this part. It says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And then he says, Jesus, as he promised. Before moving into this next section where Paul begins to proclaim Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, he you know, he kind of wraps up this little historical overview lesson with a highly controversial and no doubt shocking statement about Jesus Christ. Again, what is the context? Paul took them on a journey back through redemptive history. Promises, promises, promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and King David. And then right here in verse 23, he proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises, or at least of the most important promise, that God would bless the world through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. He says, from the offspring, basically, paraphrasing, from the offspring of King David, God brought to Israel a savior, a deliverer. And he says his name is Jesus. And he says, just as God had promised, this was a controversial statement. For many in the audience, this would have been that disconnect point in the sermon. You know how you've listened to a sermon, then the guy says something that kind of rubs you wrong, you don't like it, and from that moment on, you're thinking about other things. Or you're boiling with anger. You know, or you're completely distracted. You decide that's the opportune time to slip off your flip-flop and do your toenails. You know, or whatever it is. This was that moment in the sermon, and there's going to be more moments as we continue to examine his sermon, but this was that moment. Man, he had these people's attention. 
Man, he's talking about our history and God's redemptive plan and our forefathers. Man, we love this. This is the best sermon I've ever heard so far. And then he says, Jesus. And then all of a sudden, ah, uh-oh. Oh, he's going there. He's going to talk about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Right now, this is that moment where more than that, more than half, two-thirds, maybe almost, probably all of them are saying to themselves, ah, dang it. I thought he was just going to continue on that trajectory of glorifying us because we're the chosen people and we have all the promises. What's he doing talking about Jesus? This is that disconnect point. Jews who were aware of Jesus thought of him as what? A stumbling block. They believed that Jesus had come to lead Israel away from the true God, not to the true God. They believed he was a false prophet and what? An agent of Beelzebub. That's what they said. And that is why they murdered him. They did not believe his testimony. They did not believe that his, anything that he said, what he did, backing up what he said through these miracles. They did not believe how he proclaimed himself to be the sent son of God, God himself. They did not believe these things. They thought that he was, you know, guilty of treason and blasphemy and, you know, there's only one God. We've been talking about Trinity all morning. There's no way. They murdered him because of these things, because of his testimony, because of what he said. Many of the Jews in Paul's audience would have become distracted, frustrated, and angered by Paul's statement about Jesus here. No doubt. They're upset now. They're listening. You had us at our history, and now you say Jesus. That's it. Sitting there boiling. Paul was aware of the potential for this. Completely aware, he knew that if he invoked the name of Jesus, that would also invoke a negative response from, from some of many of his listeners, from some of his listeners, if not all. He knew that if I talk about Jesus, it's going to cause trouble, just as it had done with him. What did he do before being saved and changed into this apostle? He heard the name of Jesus, got angry, tried to kill people, had one killed, pursued the church, right? He had come from these types of folks who thought the way that they did and saw Jesus as an enemy, not a savior. And so he knew that if I bring up Jesus, it's going to cause trouble. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was really more like a parent. You can relate to this, you parents, who was determined to give his child a spoonful of that nasty taste in serum. You know, the child's sick. The child needs the medication, and he's like a parent, man. You just kind of give it to them no matter what. That's how he was. I'm going to give them what they need despite the fact that they don't like the way it tastes. I'm going to give it to them. Paul was like a physician who was determined to give his patients the remedy despite any requests for a second, third, fourth opinion. You're sick. You rejected and murdered Jesus Christ. You need to be made aware of that, and you need to repent. He knew that naming Jesus, calling out, and saying Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises, but like I said, he's resolute in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where we get that power to do that, to be resolute, to take risks, to be bold. Paul was a preacher. He wasn't a parent trying to give medicine. He wasn't a physician trying to give, you know, a 
trying to give a diagnosis and instruction. He was a preacher of the gospel, and his purpose for being there was to preach the gospel no matter what. Come hell or high water, he was there to preach Jesus as Israel's promised and long-awaited Savior. And in verse 23, that's exactly what he did. Takes him through a historical lesson and says, guess what? There were promises made. You're all aware of those things. He's talking about the fathers. They know what he's talking about. And he says, guess what? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. He is the one that came through the line of David. He is your Savior, Israel. He's saying this to this mixed group. He's your Savior. God sent him to us. I want to spend some time equipping you this morning in the area of evangelism. As I was studying last week, three things about Paul's evangelistic method sort of came to the surface. You ever read the Word of God, maybe, you know, marinate, meditate on it a little bit, and things begin to kind of bubble forth? And that's kind of what happened. You know, I was really interested and excited just to keep moving through this text and keep teaching this sermon, uh, at Paul's sermon, and, and, and expounding on it. But, man, I got hung up on these things that began to come Fourth, I really couldn't get myself past them. I became convinced that God wanted me to share with you these things. Evangelism is highly important. We call ourselves a missional church. We are a church that wants to plant churches and a church that wants to reach people uh, with Jesus Christ. And so evangelism is a big part of, of who we are and, and what we do. And many of us are in, you know, engaged in a lot of evangelism now. We're sharing Jesus Christ with the lost people we know at work and these areas, and, and you know, quite frankly, I'll just be as bold as I can. There's a right way to evangelize, and there are a hundred million wrong ways to do it. <laughs> well, as long as you're talking about Jesus, it's okay. <laughs> no. There are right ways to proclaim Jesus Christ to people, and there are wrong ways to do it. And so my goal this morning is to, is to examine this verse, and a little bit before that, to see, we can pull out, we can extract these things that bubbled up. We can look at Paul's method. Why is Paul there? He's there to plant churches and evangelize. Paul had a way of doing this. And his methods are repeated in his sermons. And it, during his ministry, you see these things as you continue to study Acts and you look at his epistles. And so my goal is just to sort of build you guys up and equip you for the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of evangelism. To share with you, just to pause, and we'll move forward in the coming weeks through the sermon, but just to pause here, camp out. And I also hope that you will become emboldened to share the gospel with others. You know, Colby mentioned earlier, there's that fear that strikes us when we talk about going door to door. And we're not going to try to do it like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witness do it. Mostly what we're going out to do, yes, is there an evangelistic component? Yeah, but we're out there, we're really going out to introduce ourselves and say, you know, there's a church right around the corner who loves Jesus Christ and loves people, you're welcome there. And in that church, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are welcome there. You can come just as you are. We are there to build that social bridge. And if we're afforded the opportunity, we will share the gospel right in that very moment. And boy, do we need to be equipped in that very moment to do it. But there's a nervousness and a fear that strikes us. Well, guess what? If you don't know the right way to do it, how is that going to help you at all with your trepidation and fear? One of the biggest fears in sharing the gospel with people is how to do it. How do I do it? How do I strike up a conversation? What do I do? Well, there's some great principal truths here in this text that are going to help you. And you better be ready. 
okay? These things are coming full throttle. Wide open, two-stroke. It's on. It's on, okay? It's on. Get ready. You ready? I don't know if those chairs have seat, belt, you know, seat belts, but you better strap something on you. Let's do this. I hope you'll become emboldened through this as well, equipped and emboldened. And I know it's made me bolder studying this stuff. But here's three things. This will be the sermon, so it's going to take a little bit of time. Three things about Paul's evangelistic method. Camp it out on this verse. Number one, Paul did not begin with the cross. You've read the verses that we studied last week, right? You, you see how he begins by addressing them and saying, hey, how are you? Pay attention to me. And then he begins to give them this historical survey. He gives them a context is what he does. He frames Jesus in a context because guess what? The atoning work of Jesus, the cross, is framed within a redemptive context. He doesn't begin with the cross. Example, he doesn't start by saying, hi, how are you? I'm the Apostle Paul. I've been sent here from this particular church. And guess what? We're all sinners and Jesus came to die for our sins on a cross so that we can be saved and go to heaven. That's not at all what he, he doesn't say that anywhere in the sermon, but he doesn't start his sermon with that. Now, how often do we begin our evangelistic efforts with that? Without giving them a story, without telling them that God is a creator and, and that, you know, men fell into sin and that we're all sinners and bound by sin, that God sent a redeemer, a rescuer. You see, there's a narrative here. There's a redemptive narrative, a meta-narrative, a big story that's playing out. And, and you, you, you can't go towards the middle and believe me, the cross is amazing. I love it. It's probably one of the most defining moments of all history. But you cannot start people there who do not believe that there is a creator God. How can you start at a cross where a creator God sends Jesus to redeem fallen man when people don't even know that there's a God? Right? And so when we go to preach Jesus, we've got to preach history. We've got to let them know that there's an all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God, a just God, a wrathful God, a holy God, a merciful God. We've got to let them know about God, point to creation, point to his word, point them to the reality of God. Because God coming incarnate and rescuing sinners makes no sense to those who don't believe in God to begin with. Now, Paul did not begin with the cross. He began with history, the beginnings of God. He doesn't go all the way back to creation, which is the ultimate beginning, but he goes to the, the really, the, the, I wouldn't say it's the first point because we see prophecy in Genesis 3 about, man, one's going to come through your seed, Eve, who's going to crush his head, who's going to crush Satan. We see the, really the beginning of redemptive history being told there, but when those promises were given to Abraham, man, that's where it really kicked off and launched. That's when the motorcycle started and really started to run. I'm going to do something for sinners in this world, and I'm beginning, really, ultimately, making that promise here with Abraham, and I'm going to carry it all the way through. It's going to culminate in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul had an excellent knowledge of the cultures he ministered in. He understood Jewish culture. He understood Greek culture very well. He was a Roman citizen, so he understood Roman Greek culture very well. When Paul evangelized Jews, he spoke in a way that Jews could relate to his words. He mentioned their history, promises, kings, prophets, and so on and so forth. When Paul evangelized Greeks, he spoke in a way that the Greeks could relate to him and to his words. While preaching on Mars Hill, a particular location, he even quoted from Greek philosophers. 
not in agreement with them, but in using the things that they were familiar with that they understood to actually lead to Jesus Christ or God himself. You have to know your culture before you just go out and start saying things. And you have to know that you can't begin with the cross. If you begin with the cross, you better somehow thread that back through redemptive history and talk about how God's a creator and all that if you want to start with the cross. But you can't leave them at the cross. Start and leave at the cross. After Paul built a historical and maybe a contextual bridge between his listeners and the God of all history, he would then begin to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would. Give them the full story, not a section of it, not a segment. He did not begin with the cross because he understood that it was necessary to give an overview of history and to contextualize to a degree so that the cross would actually make sense to his listeners. The cross has to make sense for people to be able to embrace it. I wonder how often we frustrate and confuse the plain truth of Scripture because we start in the wrong place. <laughs> the cross makes no sense to those who are ignorant of the existence of God, who created all things, people, and so on. The cross makes no sense to those who are ignorant of the fall of man, depravity, and sin. Before presenting the cross, people must first be made aware of the existence of a holy, righteous creator, God, and the fall of man and depravity and sin and our need of a savior. You have to bring people into the bigger story to some degree. The cross is one scene in the grand story of redemption. Did you hear me? I think it's probably one of the most definitive scenes one of the most amazing events in all of history, more particularly redemptive history, but it's one scene. There are other parts of the story. You know, how many times have you tried to explain a movie to someone and you started at your favorite scene and they're like, that makes no sense to me because I don't understand what led up to it. Well, we're not talking about a movie here, although it plays out like one. This is a story, redemptive story. You can't just give them little sections. Doesn't mean you have to spend all your time weaving the thread through all of history. And, and then when Joshua entered the promised land, you know, gosh, you might be at the supermarket. The guy's going to kill you. He's not going to listen to you. Whatever it is, wherever it is, it could be a co-worker. But give them a context for the cross. God created, we fell, right? It's that simple. God created, we fell, God made promises. He answered those promises in Jesus by sending a Savior. Man, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why you've been pursuing all of these things is because you've been trying to find security and purpose and value in them. And I'm here to tell you, because God created, we fell, he sent a redeemer, your only hope for rescue, for peace, true joy, true happiness. Don't be afraid to use that word. Your only hope for purpose, security, uh, identity, and all that is in Jesus Christ. This is why you pursue it. You see, it's not rocket science. You have to bring people into the bigger story. The cross is one scene in the grand story, but it is a marvelous scene, isn't it? Probably my favorite. Probably one of my favorites. We have creation, the fall, the flood, the captivity, the law, the sacrificial system, the nation, the kingdom, the kingdoms, because it divided the incarnation, the gospel ministry, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the church, and the return of Jesus Christ. What are they? All scenes in God's grand redemptive story. Amen? You see how big this story is? 
The cross is that in it. One part. Therefore, we must share more of the story so that those who listen can understand why they need the cross. It's good stuff. He didn't begin at all with the cross. But let me tell you something. He got there. Sometimes we tell the story and then we just kind of think we're clever with our words and we never even get to the cross. Well, how can you leave that scene out? You're just committed the double-edged sword. You got to talk about the fall. You got to talk about sin. You got to talk about hope in Jesus. You got to talk about the gospel and what he did. And you got to kind of bring them into a knowledge of all these things. Paul's method was to present the grand story, not a scene or a chapter. The other apostles did this as well. Go back and read the sermons of Peter. We studied them. He didn't launch his sermons or his evangelistic style or method or way of doing it with the cross. He got people's attention by bringing them into the story and then saying, here's why and here's what you did to Jesus. He even says that you were part of the story playing out and God used you to fulfill his will and putting Jesus on a cross, but you're still guilty for doing it, so you need to repent. Brought them into the story. They're a part of the story, not on the outside watching the story play out. The other apostles did this. Peter did this. He didn't begin with the cross. Go back and read the sermon of Stephen the deacon again. I loved that sermon. It's one of my favorites in the scriptures so far. Did he begin with the cross? No, not at all. Gave a little bit of story, gave a little bit of narrative, reminded them of history just as Paul did. You will find, if you go back and study these sermons, you will find that all three of these guys, Peter, Stephen, and Paul, pretty much preached exactly the same way. Said the same things. The centerpiece of apostolic preaching was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of them emphasized that probably more than any other doctrine. Oh, they hammered the cross, believe me. But they all agreed that without the resurrection, we were a bunch of nimrods pursuing nothing. Jesus rose. You killed him, but he rose. That's what they would preach. And the cross and everything else. Go back and read those sermons. Look, they presented the larger story. Therefore, what? We must present the larger story. Practice that. Write things down. Write down creation. Write down the fall. Write down God's promises. Write down God coming incarnate in Jesus. Formulate yourself a biblical method for sharing the truth. Do it. Not right now. But when you leave, if you share the gospel with people, write this method down. It it actually makes sense to people when they hear all of it, even if they reject it. They're like, oh, okay, well, I just wondered about the cross this whole time because I don't know anything else. We tend to just start there. So Paul did not do that, and we must not. The second thing I want you to notice about Paul's method, Paul (laughs) did not make suggestions. He didn't make suggestions. Example, God made a promise to the fathers and to David, right? That's a little synopsis of what he said in the previous verses. He doesn't say, may I suggest to you that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises? Why do so many preachers, teachers, evangelists, regular Christians in this day and age feel that it is necessary to suggest the truth rather than proclaim it? Have you seen this? Have you heard these things? 
I just got done studying 2,000 years of church history in 300 pages. Didn't do it really all that much justice. But I took a look at it. And let me tell you, some of the most uh, influential men and even some women in church history who have influenced the church either positively or negatively, the ones who influenced the church negatively were people who looked at the very word of God as a subjective thing rather than an objective thing. Meaning they subjected the word of God to their own thoughts and theories and presuppositions and all those things. We are going to make the truth. We're going to interpret it to mean what we want it to mean rather than what it plainly means and affirms by itself. I'm baffled by how so many today stand in, in these spots, and some of them have thousands of people in front of them, and what do they do? They sit there, and they flip through maybe their journal or, or through their script, and, and, they, and they, they begin to make these suggestions. Well, you know, the Trinity is a difficult thing, and it, it could be that God is three, and it could be, and, and it could be, and all the subjectivity, not, he is a triune God. Deal with it. Instead, well, you know, it, it could be. And then the next thing you know, they're going down this philosophical road. And, and, and let me tell you, a lot of guys have influenced the church throughout the last 2,000 years with philosophy. Oregon, uh, tons of them, tons of these early church fathers, even Arrhenius, and they use allegory. It's like, man, the truth says what the truth says. Just proclaim it and leave it in God's hands. Quit trying to subject it to your philosophies, to your cleverness, to your arguments. Quit making it a flexible thing that you can pull out and bend and snap off and throw. Ah, it drives me up the wall. Those who are most guilty of this are the liberal types. Well, there's no absolute truth. There's great suggestions here in Scripture. There's some things we can base our lives on, but man, some of it's just so mysterious. We need to try to figure out what it means and then live that way, and then guess how they live? <laughs> guess what, how they write? Guess how they negatively influence the church? The emergent types, that kind of thing died out now, but man, they were huge at that. Allegory. Oh, don't you know you just went back to the first century? And these are the same errors that have been repeated, the same heresies that have been repeated throughout all of church history. None of these things are new. Subjectivity. Ah, oh, it drives me nuts. Oh, it could be this and it could be that. And, and, but let, let me, you know, the atonement, it just, it, 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 I know it says this right here, but let me tell you what I think it means. Why do people who teach God's word do this? And this is so critical to evangelism. I've got some reasons. A, tolerance. Tolerance. Many today consider tolerance to be the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be tolerant. I've exalted tolerance above everything. That's the main thing, man, that you be tolerant of other people's views. Christians today have exalted tolerance above more important things like holiness, <laughs> righteousness, justice. Wow, don't use that one. Ooh. Ooh. Many feel that proclaiming the truth, as it is clearly stated in the scriptures, comes across as being very intolerant. Because that style of preaching or teaching or exhortation doesn't leave room 
for the listener's preconceived notions and interpretations, opinions, or religious beliefs. Well, you don't want to attack those things because that would be intolerant. Suggesting the truth of a text, however, makes the truth of that text optional for the listener, which minimizes a potential backlash and minimizes accusations of intolerance. I don't want to be found guilty of that. Heaven forbid. I'm pouring it on the sarcasm as much as I can because I despise it. I I despise it when I do these things. There are times where I exalt something to where it shouldn't be. I have that tendency. We all have it. But it really irks me when it comes from the pulpits. And when I do it, I feel like my ship went down if I do it. And if I do it, call me on it. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. Tolerance doesn't offend anyone Teach the word in a tolerant way, being respectful of other viewpoints. Even those viewpoints that lead down the broad road? Yes, no. No, no. It's like a confused street sign. We know that there's a cliff up ahead, but it goes, and it doesn't really tell you not to keep driving. Right, the Dukes? You want conflicting, confused, subjective street signs? I think it's probably okay to do 55. Then you get a ticket. The sign said it was okay. Maybe. Tolerance is huge today. Be seeker sensitivity. Another one I despise. Oh, don't be mean, Phil. I'm going to. Seeker sensitivity is the belief or philosophy that teaches that natural, unregenerate sinners, lost people, have a desire within them as well as the ability to seek after God on their own. At the core of that philosophy, that's what it means. That's what seeker sensitivity means. All these people who don't know Jesus actually have an inward desire to know them. Maybe they don't know that yet. Proponents of this philosophy suggest that every person has the ability in it and that some even choose to exercise it and that is why they wander into our churches and religious establishments. That's why that lost guy comes in, you know. Oh, I'm in a church. And they sit down and listen and they're seeking. (laughs) Because of this, because because of this, the truth, Because of seeker sensitivity and the belief that all people are seeking after God and and trying to find him and they're out there looking for him. And yeah, they turn to all these wrong things, but they're out there. They're actually looking for him. Because of this, the truth must be handled in an extraordinarily sensitive way so that these seekers will not get blown out when they come in and hear us teaching. Proclamation of the truth is jettisoned and then replaced with mild suggestions or helpful pragmatic steps. And some have taken this philosophy even further by removing offensive objects from their campuses like crosses. Don't want anyone to see that nasty, ugly-looking thing. That might turn away that, that guy who's seeking in his heart. 
Let me begin to address the issue by clearly stating, not suggesting, that seeker sensitivity is a farce and concoction of the devil. I and others know that this is a fair and accurate assessment of the philosophy because the scriptures are so vividly clear on the matter. The scriptures declare that man does not seek or come to God on his own, period. That is a doctrinal truth. It doesn't flex. And there are a boatload of verses that say it. Well, there's one that might hint towards it. Now, there's the liberal, right? No. Psalm 10:4. in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, that seek God. All his thoughts are what? There is no God. Isaiah 64, 7, there is no one who calls upon your name. Not one. John 3, 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Who is God? He is light. Hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Wow. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And then in John 6.44, and there's more, just don't have time. In John 6.44, we read that no one comes to Jesus unless what? They are first drawn by who? The Father, the Spirit. These verses teach that no one seeks God and no one comes to God on their own and that God is actually the seeker who finds and effectually calls lost sinners to his son, Jesus Christ. There is a seeker and he's sensitive and his name is God. It's not Jim or Fred or Bill or Phil. We do not seek. In fact, we flee from God. That's what natural men do. They seek shelter. They seek hiding places because they know that God will expose their deeds, call them to repentance. God is the seeker. If there is a seeker sensitivity, it's God. Therefore, since God is the one who seeks and effectually calls lost sinners to Jesus Christ, he's the one that draws them, as Jesus himself said. Therefore, if any man or woman seeks... If he stumbles into our church and is seeking after God, he's seeking because God's grace is already drawing him or her by God's grace. That's why they come. That's why they come. They don't come on their own. This is not a negotiable truth. It's not. Well, you say, what about all those calls to repentance and all those things? Those are generalized calls given to multitudes of people. You know, choose this day who ye will serve. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. That's a general call out. Come to God, and if you do, I know that God is at work in your life. That is a theme of Scripture. We are depraved, we are fallen, we do not pursue God. If you think that natural people do, jettison that thinking, because it's not biblical, okay? Get rid of it. And you're taught in churches today that it is a possibility that men do seek, that men do come. And at the same time, they reject the fact that God's work, God is at work by his grace in the life of that person. Because God wants to save all. All have the ability to come. It's not the way it works. They can't come unless the Father helps them to come. 
Well, what does seeker sensitivity do? It flies right in the face of what the Bible teaches repeatedly. Oh, we better be careful because there's guys out there that are coming and because they have that natural ability. And if they come in, we don't want to proclaim truth. Let's suggest it so we don't hurt their feelings. Let's suggest it because they're like that little newborn, you know, and they're, and they come in and they're all super sensitive and delicate. And, and so might I suggest to you that Jesus came as the Lord and Savior? Oh, thank you for not offending me. You see how people play with the truth? Do you know how many pastors believe in seeker sensitivity and proclaim it and utilize this philosophy? Way too many. And there's a bunch of churches in town that do it here. It's craziness. There's no such thing. The devil has convinced a multitude of church leaders to believe that unregenerate men seek after God, and that is why they must, that is why they must change the way they handle the word. We've got to change the way we preach. We can't proclaim the truth like that. We've got to suggest it because it blows people out. The devil says with his slithering forked tongue men are not helpless believe me they have the ability to come to god and when they do be sensitive to them don't proclaim the truth because that might endanger the fragility of their state of being suggest the truth to them nobody gets blown out when the truth is suggested and keep in mind that some men some women remain in this fragile state their whole life so that you might have to keep suggesting the truth during all the rest of the days of your ministry that comes from hell. Third reason why preachers suggest truth rather than proclaim truth. See self-preservation. Church leaders today have become enamored by the numbers. The most common question asked by pastors and other pastors is, how many people do you have in your church? How many people are you running? You know, it's like you got an old car. How many cylinders are you running? How many people are you running at your church? That is the number one question asked by clergymen to clergymen. When they ask me, I say, none of your dang business. You know, right? None of your business. You're trying to weigh yourself against me? Well, I got 2,000. You have 60. Little insignificant pastor. You know, people used to build big four-wheel drive trucks to try to compensate for deficiencies in their lives. What men do today is they build these great big, big, great big gigantic stinking churches to compensate for their little personal and emotional deficiencies. Whoever has the biggest church, they do that. Men in clergy, clergymen, pastors, they do this. Flexing their church might. Tragically, their Identity, their purpose, their value, their security is in how many people they have and not in Jesus Christ. And so what do they do when it comes to proclaiming the word? They don't proclaim it. They suggest it. They play around with it. They put it out there and let everyone, you know, play with it like it's Plato. They don't want to blow anyone out. Why? Because they don't want people to leave their church. Because if that happens, then what happens to their ego? It's funny, but it's happening right now as I preach in churches. So why do they suggest truth rather than proclaim it? To preserve their empire, to preserve what they have. You can't proclaim truth as it is clearly stated and then affirm that proclamation with other scripture because scripture proves scripture. We don't prove nothing. Scripture proves itself. You can't do it that way because it, it you know, ruffles up feathers, it rubs people wrong, it upsets them. And we don't want people leaving the church. We don't want people, a mass exodus out of here because they've heard the truth. We've got to be sensitive to them. 
Third thing I want you to notice about Paul's evangelistic method, Paul did not give his personal opinions. Paul did not give his personal opinions. Did I do the right one? Yes, he made suggestions. Good. Lost my place. Third thing, third and final thing, Paul did not give his personal opinions. This is huge today. Example, God made a promise to the fathers and to David. (laughs) How wonderful. In my personal opinion, I believe Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. (laughs) I need a neck pop. There it is. Let me begin by stating that personal opinions carry no weight or thrust. Opinions are meant to be shared, accepted, or rejected. The scriptures, however, are meant to be accepted and obeyed by all people, not just the church. Oh, just the Christians have to obey all that. No. All people. Take, for instance, the Decalogue, a.k.a. Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is God's revealed standard of living for what? For who? All human beings, every man, woman, and child is obliged to live according to the Ten Commandments, and every lawbreaker will be condemned and justly punished. That is what the Bible teaches. There are no exceptions. God is the creator, and those are his rules for his created beings. For his beings, created beings. We tend to think that the Ten Commandments just apply to this group. They apply to every person who has ever lived, lives now, and will live. God's standard for all. Over in Acts 17, 30 to 31, Luke tells us that God commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will, fixed a day in the future by which he will judge the world. Why does God command people everywhere to repent? Because all people everywhere are obliged to obey God's laws and all people have disobeyed God's laws and all people need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. So the scriptures have a broad scope because they apply to every person. Your opinion, however, has a limited scope. You conceived it, so you accept it. And maybe a friend or two accept it. Maybe. But that's about it. What we see in the church today is a whole bunch of opinion giving rather than truth giving. Rather than proclamation. This happens in pulpits. Men pontificate. They share their opinions rather than give the biblical and contextual meanings of text. Church folks do the same. They give their opinions about their beliefs and so on. They say, I believe this or I believe that. They say, let me share with you my opinion about that passage of Scripture. I don't care. They pontificate when they give counsel. Let me give you my opinion, my two cents about what to do with your marriage and so on and so forth. Friends, 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 our opinions carry very little weight, if any, They have very little velocity, if any, and they make little to no impact. But what does the truth do? The truth sets us free. The truth is a guide to our feet and a light to our path. The truth brings life because it is the very word of God. You see, so when we teach, we shouldn't be given a bunch of opinions. We should be giving the truth as it is plainly stated. Why? Because 
It is what saves. It is where there is life. It is where there is sanctification and transformation and, and all these wonderful things that God offers. Your opinion has nothing. Well, guess what? The truth doesn't stroke your ego. Your opinion does when you give it, doesn't it? <laughs> and what about faith? How does faith come? Faith comes by what? Hearing what? Your opinion? The truth. That's how faith comes. Quite frankly, I don't want to hear your opinions. I want to hear the truth. Give me the verse. Give me the meaning. Affirm the meaning by context and by other scriptures, because scripture proves scripture, and give me the application. Leave your opinions out. But men love to pontificate, don't they? They love to share their opinions. Recently listened to about an hour-long sermon where a pastor quoted maybe one or two verses at most and then spent the remainder of his time sharing his opinions, most of which were about himself. Well, I and I, and I was an all-star athlete, and I and I and I. Flamethrower, pulpit. <laughs> Not him, the pulpit. Get that pulpit out of here. That pulpit's causing the problem. Anyone who comes and stands in a pulpit and does that is part of the problem in the church today and in the world. He just went on and on in constant pontificating and just, I did this and I did that and here's what I've achieved and I'm this and I'm that and, and really didn't teach anything. Because men love to talk about their opinions. They love to talk about themselves. By the end of his message, it became clear that that pastor loved and cared more about himself than for Jesus or Jesus' people. Shame on him. He needs to repent. I wanted to puke. A couple years ago, I watched a guy I know share the Christian faith with the Jehovah's Witness. We were at a conference, and my buddy, this other guy, ended up at the same breakfast table. You know, those cheesy, you know, continental. Makes it sound good, but it's like a cheesy Costco Danish. Not even one from their bakery. Svedzenhens or whatever name they are, you know, the little bag, Svendenhart or whatever, right? You get those and you get some, you know, cruddy coffee and, you know, some really weak orange juice, right? You know, continental breakfast, right? So we're in this hotel lobby getting this continental breakfast, you know. This one actually had bacon, and I think it was turkey bacon, which is satanic. But <laughs> so he had already gone and got his food and was sitting at this table with this guy, and they were having this debate. They were having this conversation. You know, and the Jehovah's Witness was talking, and he was talking. I was over here listening. I, I, I like to listen. I'm like, you know, I, like, I got like dog ears. You know, they face this way, but then they go like this when something's going on behind me. They flip around. It scares people. So I, my ears are like this. I don't hear what's going on over here. I hear what's going on right here, and I'm listening to him. And here is my buddy who I love and care for still today, and here he is. Well, I believe this. I believe that. I believe this. I believe that. Jehovah's Witness, I believe this. I believe that. You believe this. That's wrong. I believe this. And it's going back and forth. It's like a tennis match. I'm like, poof, poof. you know, ears are, poof, poof, you know. And I'm just sitting over here getting this fake bacon, right? And I, and I, like, I go over to the table. Their table, there was another chair there. That was a mistake. They should have took that chair away. So I went there and sat down with my fake bacon and everything and just continued to listen to them for about five minutes, and then I couldn't handle any more. And I looked at my buddy who was here and the Jehovah's Witness guy that was here, and here's my buddy. And I said to him, why don't you take 
that Bible that's sitting right next to your plate and quit telling him what you think and show him what you believe. Why don't you show him what the truth says? He says there's no hell. Show him that hell exists. He says that Jesus is not the Son of God. Why don't you show him what got Jesus killed when Jesus proclaimed, I am. Why don't you quit? We don't have all morning, bro. We got to go to this conference. You guys are going to go back and forth all morning. It's 15 love, you know, 40 love, 30 love, 20, right? He's got a Bible right next to him, right here. And here he is, I believe, I believe. My opinion is it works like this and that. And they're going back and forth. And here he is, and he's got the very word of God right next to him. Easy access. This is what it says. What that Jehovah's Witness did not need was what, to hear what he believed over and over and over, or his opinions. That's how this young man, this Jehovah's Witness, perceived what he was saying, his opinion. Let the very word of God do the speaking. And so he got all ticked off at me. I had him. Because as soon as I said open the word, the guy bolted. Because they'd been trained to do that. Ah, that's my cue. Jehovah's Witness won't hang out and debate you when you open a Bible. Well, here, it says hell right here. What's that? You know? He bolted as soon as he opened the Bible. And then he said, why did you do that? I had, I had that thing going on. I had control of that, man. I, I was leading him somewhere. I was getting him somewhere. And I said, all you did was share your opinions with him. That's what you did. You should have just gave him the word and left it at that. Now, he was ticked off all day, but he finally got over it. He ate the same bacon, so he felt bad. <laughs> he was like, I ate that cruddy bacon too, man. I love you. <laughs> I was like, whatever. Not one time was there a verse mentioned, you know, not one time. Not one time. Kind of reminds me of that great quote by Spurgeon. He said, defend the Bible, right? Question, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion, unchange it, unchain it, and it will defend itself, <laughs> right? And the Word of God will defend itself. Use it. Don't give him your opinion or what you believe. Give him the truth. Paul didn't give his personal opinions. No, that was not his method or style. He gave his listeners the truth straightforwardly. He did not make suggestions. He did not suggest the truth. He did not submit himself to the idol of tolerance or to the false philosophy of seeker sensitivity. And he certainly wasn't interested in preserving himself in any way as some of these men are today. What did Paul do? He proclaimed the truth. He was bold and unflinching. And he knew that as soon as the name Jesus left his lips, that all hell could break loose. And as we continue to study and look down through the sermon and look in the coming chapters, we will see that all hell does break loose. Now, don't misunderstand me as I wrap it up. I'm not advocating for meanness. Okay? Handling the truth in a mean way is like rap music in heaven. It's bad. 1 Corinthians 13. You can't handle any of the gifts or any of these marvelous things, these means of grace that God has given us that he wants us to dispense in an unloving way. It's just bad music in heaven. Some of you like, I like rap. Shame on you. It's just bad music, man. I'm not advocating for being mean. Meanness does nothing. We're not to be mean with the truth. Being mean with the truth is equivalent to playing in cymbals, banging gongs, and bad music in heaven. We are to what? Proclaim the truth in love. Evangelize in love. You can proclaim the truth in a loving and winsome way. 
You can. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with you, you won't. So what? When you go out and you proclaim the gospel, when you go to work and evangelize and share the truth with others, be filled in the morning with the Holy Spirit. Be filled in, in that moment. Call upon God to fill you. Lessen you and bring more of Him into you. It's the only way you're going to do it. We want people to come to know Jesus as Savior. We want people to experience His surpassing goodness. Do you hear what I said? Surpassing. It surpasses all other forms of goodness. What He gives is so far beyond any goodness that you could get in this life or via the flesh or via someone else. The goodness that He gives is literally life-changing. We want people to experience the surpassing goodness. It surpasses all other forms of goodness or whatever we perceive to be good. Therefore, we must lovingly proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lovingly, lovingly, lovingly. You can proclaim the truth in love. Why do I teach the way I do? Why do I get loud? Why do I do all that? Because I've come to know the truth in my Lord and Savior, and I want people to know him so bad I can't stop yelling. I don't mean to offend anyone. Truth offends people at times. I don't want to offend them with the way I present it. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. It's the only thing that changes and saves and has power. God works through it. May we submit ourselves to the truth and live out the truth, modeling what it means to live it out and share the truth. Not give in to these temptations to do any of these other things that are so prevalent in the church. Quick review. Paul did not begin with the cross. He drew his listeners into the story first and then preached the cross. You ought to just make that what you're about and how you deal with the truth, how you deal with evangelism. Paul did not make suggestions. He proclaimed the truth, the plain truth of Scripture, and he did it boldly and confidently while leaving the results in God's hands. You know why we manipulate the truth so much? Because we want to perpetuate a result right there because it caters to our egos and makes us feel good. If we can get them to pray that prayer, then wow, we've done our job, and I can glory in that. Do you know how many people pray the prayer of salvation and are not saved? More than less. People are banking on that little prayer they did, and they don't even know the Lord. We want results, so we fabricate and manipulate. Don't make suggestions. Proclaim the plain truth of Scripture and leave the results in God's hands. I have to teach myself every week. That's your mission this week. Don't try to fabricate or produce results. Don't do it, Phil. Let God do the work. He's the one. And finally, Paul did not give his personal opinions. He went right to the word, right to the truth. He let the word of God speak for itself. Left it in God's hands. Here's what the truth says. There you go. My prayer is that you have been maybe a little further equipped today, maybe even a little emboldened. Take what you've heard and apply it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is essential. And then go out and share God's story. Share the good news. Leave the results to God. His word says that his word never returns void and always accomplishes all of his purposes. 
Some of those purposes are accomplished in the very moment that you speak the truth. He works it out right there. And some of those things become solidified, manifested, you know, whatever, later. But God always accomplishes his purpose. So what are we to do? Be faithful to his word. Say it, preach it in love, and leave it to him. And he will blow your mind. He will, man. <laughs> Amen. We're going to have a time of communion right now and where you can come and worship the Lord as we close up and take these elements over here, which represent our victory in him. You know, the bread represents his broken body. The juice represents his blood. Those things symbolize his broken body and his spilt out blood. And ultimately, they represent our freedom because he died the way that he did. Really, because of the way he rose, too. He was resurrected. I mean, we have life. You know, and that's why we take these elements every week to recognize what he did on our behalf and to worship him for it. And so that's why we're going to take those things. Keep in mind that his work is a finished work. You don't have to earn anything. You know, you could be compulsed by a sermon like this to go out and try to do all kinds of things to please God. It ain't about that. <laughs> it's not about that. You're not trying to please him. You're not trying to, uh, yeah, you want to please him, but you're not trying to earn anything from him, his favor or salvation or any of that. You know, I think it was Augustine that said it. He put it so well. He just basically said, love God and do what you please. And I wrestled with that at first because I thought, man, that's going to be, you know, I'm going to be doing some bad things. Not if you love God first. Love God and do what you please. Because if you love God, you're going to do what pleases him and ultimately what pleases you. And we could take these elements just reflecting upon how marvelous he is and what he's done and how he saved us and redeemed us, what those elements represent, that we are free in him, the burden of sin, the wage of sin, and that we can go out and be bearers of this wonderful good news. It's news that's good. It's so good, it's too good to be true. If you know who you are as a sinner, you've got to be thinking to yourself, it's too good to be true because I know me. Guess what, friend? It's true. It's what he did. Wow. So if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and Savior, take these elements in remembrance of what he did. Confess any sin to him. Ask him to help you in this moment and worship him. Father, thanks for this time. Bless this time of communion. Take these truths and apply them to our hearts deeply. May we walk out of this place really wanting to go share your truth and love. And that's what you've called us to do. you called us to make disciples. How do we do that? By the truth. By teaching the truth. The truth changes people. And so may we uphold the truth. Love the truth because it is your word to us. And share it freely. Communion, what you did at the cross, Jesus, equips us and, and readies us to even go out and be a minister for you. To evangelize. So let's take these elements in pure adoration to you and joy and maybe have a little time of confession. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done in us and that you continue to do each moment. You don't just save us and leave us. You save us and change us minute by minute. How marvelous is that? Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Help yourselves, friends. <laughs>